millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Living History UK podcast, a podcast for the discerning and knowledge-hungry historians out there. You can support our podcast and get much more from Living History UK by joining our Patreon from just one pound. And by doing so, you'll be a part of an ever-growing community and really help to make a difference as we strive to keep history alive. But for now, enjoy this podcast. Hello and welcome to Living History UK podcast. I'm your presenter, Danny Reese, and today I'm joined by my close friend and also fellow museum curator, Colonel Andy Taylor. Firstly, Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Danny. And today's podcast, we're going to be mainly covering the way that you, the listener, can actually help your local regimental museums and the importance of these regimental museums in the community. Well, thanks, Danny, for that introduction. Yeah, Danny there sort of emphasised the local museums. And we're all aware of the National Museums, the National Army Museum, the Imperial War Museum, these type of museums. And they do a tremendous job. But because they are national museums, they don't focus on the local history and the local uh, regiments. And that's really the importance of the small county and uh, regional museums. And the Herefordshire Light Infantry Museum is very much one of those smaller museums. It's true that. It's, it's, the National Army Museum is quite a big, and the Imperial War Museum are quite big, but you as younger collectors and living historians can actually really help these local local museums. Most of you listening will have a in, really in-depth knowledge of kit and equipment, which can be really helpful. That, that's true. And also, there are lots of individuals um, around who's, well, not so many now who served with the Herefordshire Light Infantry, but whose fathers did and uh, great-grandfathers and uncles did. And there's lots of news articles uh, and, and pieces relative to the museum which are around. And to be honest, the national museums will not really be interested in those. But we, as a local museum, are really interested because it's a local man. It tells the local story. It tells the history and from these local links, we can then build up the bigger picture and see what the effect was 
uh, at a particular time of the forces and the regiment on the county, on the community, or even what the effect of the county and the community were on the individual soldier. For example, when they were serving overseas during the Second World War, how were they, how were they supported by the county? And all of these things are, are, are really important because it, it, it brings out the, the ethos of the regiment, the community uh, spirit that there was. And it's part of that, that history, that local history, which we hope that spirit still endures today. So it, it's a living history and it's linking the past to the current well, yes, Andrew. Yeah, it's, it's, see, all you younger collectors out there, um, living historians, really have an in-depth knowledge of this era because you're looking at it from a different aspect. You're not looking at it from the medals and awards and reading the war diaries. You're actually handling and the kids eating the rations if you buy them from Steve Davis. And you can actually get that insight and actually help these little regimental museums. Now, the Herefordshire Regimental Museum here in Suvla Barracks, we cover a fascinating history, and you're always more than welcome to come down here, book an appointment, come and have a look around the museum. We're a small county, but we're absolutely packed with history. And Herefordshire, being only a territorial county, is quite astounding, really. Yes, it is, and certainly a very rural county. And there's not been a great deal of population movement over the years and through the generations. And many of the names which featured in the regiment in the Boer War, so 125 years ago. The names are repeated in the First World War ranks, in the Second World War ranks. And in fact, there are some individuals now serving in the Army Cadet Force in Hereford whose fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers serve with the regiment. So it very much is a family regiment with a family atmosphere and spirit. And this is something which the local regional uh, museums and local uh, county museums and county regiments have, which many of the bigger regiments and the corps didn't have. So again, it's a spirit which exists within the museum. But I mentioned that um, there were names of individuals that went away from the county for the Boer War. But the regiment started in about 1860 when there was a perceived um, invasion threat from the French and the home defence forces were considered inadequate. So the Rifle Volunteer Corps were formed, and amongst those was the Herefordshire and Radnor Rifle Volunteers, and that really was the start of the regiment. Uh, Members from the Rifle Volunteers volunteered and served in South Africa during the Boer War, and men from Herefordshire served with the 2nd Battalion of the King's Shropshire Light Infantry. And then in 1908... As a result of the poor performance, really, of the British Army and the Reserve Army in the Boer War, there was a massive reorganisation and the Territorial Force was formed. And this was the real birth of the Herefordshire Regiment by that title. Uh, They soldiered on. They were mobilised in 1914. And during the First World War, they served in Gallipoli, at Suvla Bay, the Middle East, and on the Western Front as well. Uh, Lots of recruits and a second battalion was formed. Uh, At one time, there was a third battalion as well, but that second and third battalion never served overseas. At the end of the First World War, there was reorganisation, as of course there always is, and the hard economic times of the late 20s and the 30s meant that there were real problems with the forces. 
the Herefordshire Regiment did soldier on, and with the threat of the Second World War, the Territorial Army was um, doubled in size, and a second battalion of the Herefordshire Regiment was formed. Both battalions were mobilised in August or September 1939 on the outbreak of the Second World War. The first battalion was destined for overseas operational service with 11th Armoured Division and landed over the beaches of Normandy and fought across France, the Low Country, into Germany and ended the war on the Danish border at Flensburg, where uh, they took part in the operation to arrest, amongst others, Grand Admiral Donitz. The second battalion were slated for home defence and never served overseas. But as the threat of invasion to UK disappeared, uh, the members of the battalion were posted out to reinforce other units and eventually they were disbanded shortly after D-Day. After the Second World War, again, massive reorganisation and a, a, a drastic reduction of the troops from the war footing and the Herefordshire Regiment became the Herefordshire Light Infantry in 1946, uh, serving as a territorial battalion again. And in 1966, under further reforms, uh, it, it disappeared. And within Herefordshire, there were two, count, two companies of the Light Infantry Volunteers. Over the successive years from then, the uh, numbers have reduced and reduced. The Light Infantry have disappeared and with other, other regiments have formed the rifles. And the only reserve unit now in Herefordshire is one platoon of six battalion of the rifles. So that was a very potted history of, of the Herefordshire regiment. I, I, I often give a presentation on the history of the regiment. And my standard sort of talking time is anything from 40 to 50 minutes but I have been known to go on for 90 minutes. So to, so to, to uh, condense that into something short of 10 minutes, I think I've done quite well, <laughs> Danny. Very well there, Andy. Yeah, I think most of, our, most of our listeners are mainly fascinated with the Second World War era. Most of them are living historians from that era. And especially you know, with the Herefords landing after D-Day and going with the 11th Armoured, you know, we're, we're talking 40 pattern uh, uh, battle dress, 37 pattern, blankoed in KG-103, not, not KG-3. And looking at that later war equipment is quite interesting. But I know we do have some listeners who have actually gone to the depths of recreating Boer War era equipment and also, like myself, have recreated the Territorial Force equipment, i.e. the 1908 pattern bandolier equipment and the earlier 02 pattern. I know yesterday myself and uh, Andy were spent a good, a good deviated few minutes mm-hmm. looking at photographs pre-First World War, trying to look at when the 1905 pattern cap had been introduced to the Herefords. And, of course, obviously the Territorials being at the bottom of the supply chain, it seems to have been brought up a few more uh, questions and answers yeah, as always. Ab- absolutely. I mean, we, we've studied lots of photographs, and some we have dates for, some we don't. So it's difficult to actually tie them down. But of course, being a territorial battalion, as Danny said, last in the line to get stuff issued. And I suspect, like lots of soldiers, that they want to be comfortable. So they would uh, change kit, acquire kit to make their lives a bit more comfortable. So the photographs are a good record. But unless they are fully authenticated, it's very difficult to take them as an authority. Yeah, I agree, Annie. Yeah, it's one of those things. My term I use quite a bit, and the listeners will know that I say pamphlet soldiering. Don't base everything you do off the army manuals. Use them as a guide. Look at the photographs, especially with something like that. If you're portraying something like 
the Hereford or you obtain another small unit, photos are worth their weight in gold. As a great John Tamplin once said, research, research, research. Get every photograph you can together and have a look. And don't if you're putting together a, an impression or a kit, don't look at the one man the one man who's decided to carry his mess tins in a water bottle carrier and decide that every man in your unit's gonna do that. Just pick up on one guy doing it because obviously not everyone decided to do that. Look at the photographs. Look at the averages. That's what's really important, especially with a small unit like the Herefords. The photographs from the Second World War, you know, we've, we've questioned about if they wore either the, wore the Mark II helmet or they were wearing the Mark III helmet. And that's when we looked at photographs and most of them, they're wearing Mark IIs. They're not wearing the turtle helmet. But it's, it's interesting you talk about that and, and how things change because... Um... The first battalion during the Second World War, obviously, they were on a fighting footing and were heavily engaged. And there is an account by one soldier whose name I can't remember now, but they've fought up to Flensburg. The the Germans have capitulated, and within about three days, they were doing town patrols, formal town patrols. And they have to put on their 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 best uh, uh, battle dress. They have to ball their boots, blanco all their equipment, and they were out marching around the town um, as you would sort of expect people on parade to. And th- th- this one soldier relates that they had to find all their original equipment uh, and issued equipment, get it in good order, and so all of the odd bits and pieces which they'd been wearing for the last 12 months while they'd been fighting and needed to make their life more comfortable and efficient. That went by the board. They were now parade ground soldiers again. Back to the back of the pamphlet as well. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, a fantastic photograph of the Herefords, which I'll try and put up in the in the picture of this podcast. And it's two Herefords looking at a bicycle that they've captured off some German forces. Yeah. And strapped to this bicycle are two Panzerfausts. Uh, but interestingly, not not the bicycle, that didn't take my interest. The guy on the right-hand side of the picture has got the leather jerkin, uh, as we know from the Great War, but also he's in the Second World War. But he's been quite an ingenious chap because he's taken a greatcoat, he's cut the arms and the collar off a greatcoat and had the machine stitched to a jerkin. And I always thought if I get hold of a greatcoat, I'd like to do that to a jerkin because it would be quite a warm bit of kit for events, especially when it's cold at Victory Show or something. <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah, so... and. It, how do you feel that museums should be taking like living? I know a lot. There's a lot of bad, bad, not bad blood, but bad press between living historians and museums, and they don't seem to in into gel. Why do you, Why do you think that is? Well, I, I think that there 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 is perhaps a degree of sort of jealousy and and ignorance, and, and I mean that with a small eye. Uh, uh, each of the other, um, I think that they have a slightly different role as well. I mean, I think that. The, the, the museums are there to uh, present history in, in a package. Uh, they also have other roles in, in that, um, you know, with, with the reduced size of the army, the, the, the museums now are almost the military footprint into the community. Whereas the living history people, it, it's in their title, it's living history. It, it, it's not static, it, it, it's moving. I think that, again, lots of the museum professionals had a bad experience perhaps with reenactors mm. in the past. Um, and some of the reenactors can be a bit spotterish. 
And I think. <laughs> what do you want to say, Andy? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I mean, I, I, I'm not not pointing at you, Danny. But uh, but but some of them can be a bit obsessional about things to the point where they don't actually want to listen mm. to the people who are the technical experts. You know, lots of the museum people do know lots. Lots of them have actually, or did, live through those periods. They actually know what it's like. And, and they, they, they don't want to be told what mm. it was like. They know what it was like. And so I think that there's a degree of... Um, uh, of sort of uh, not fully understanding yeah, the, see, yeah. what, what, what each side is about. Um, fr- from my personal point of view, I think that, that you know, the, the living history teams like you're part of uh, do, do a tremendous job. Uh, and we, we should work, the museum and the living history people should work together in parallel because we're both trying to preserve something but we're trying to preserve that in a different way. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and so the two can live together. And in many cases, they, they overlap and, and, and really can work and help each other out. So, yeah, I think I'd summarise quite well. Those of you guys who are independent or not part of a big group, or even if you're, you're one of the heads of one of the, one of the groups, make, reach out and contact your local regimental museums because... You, know, you could be offering them help on their open days or if they need volunteers. As we said before... A lot of the regimental museums, like ourselves here at the Herefordshire Regimental Museum, receive no formal funding. Everything we get to improve displays, keep the lights on, basically, we need to get from you from donations. We need help, basically, for you, our listeners. So, you know, I know Living History UK, we have our own Patreon, but also the Herefordshire Regimental Museum has a Patreon. So it would be really helpful. If anyone has wants to spare the price of a coffee a month, you could really help us out both Living History UK and the Herefordshire Regimental Museum. But most importantly, get out there. Get to your regimental museums. Pop in, say hello. Do they need help on an open day? You're probably, to you guys out there, you all come from more different backgrounds, but you all have a passion for history and you're all willing to teach. You're all willing to do a kit layout. You're willing to talk, you know, what housewife kit is, what's part of the wash roll. You know, what did the soldier eat during the Second World War, the First World War? What was their emergency equipment? you can actually really help your regimental museums. But Andy, thank you so much for today. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Danny. And um, it's good to, uh, to, to, to chat to you. And we'd be very pleased to host anyone that wants to visit the museum. All they have to do is go to the website and, and contact us because we are only open by appointment. Uh, and, and I would stress that, that no good just turning up. You must make a prior appointment. Excellent. That's via the website or the Facebook. You can contact the Herefordshire Regimental Museum. But most of all, guys, keep history alive. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to support it, then why not send us a PayPal donation? All donations help us pay to host the podcast and for us to create new content for your enjoyment. Furthermore, if you would like to submit a question or even a subject matter for the podcast, Join Patreon and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The links are in our bio. Until next time, keep history alive.